Hey, awesome, and thanks again for being here, all five of our locations, or maybe somebody's giving you a CD or you're uh, watching us online, but Hickson, Calhoun, Ringgold, Dalton, Chatsworth, one church in five locations. Hey, welcome, Rockbridge. Glad y'all are here. My name is Matt, and uh, hey, I'm excited because this week is my favorite or one of my favorite services, and that is our first Wednesday service. So I just want to remind you, at every campus, we'll be having a, a first Wednesday service, 6.30 p.m. at all, all of our five locations. We take communion together, we'll pray together, and uh, be with God together as, uh, as the people of God. And, and also, just want to celebrate, we've had a team come back from Honduras. One of our desires at Rockbridge is to be people who love God, love others, and live sent. And, and living sent means taking the love, taking the message of Jesus and declaring it, but also demonstrating it. So we get to build fresh, or dig and build freshwater wells in villages and locations in Honduras that if these wells did not exist, they would be walking a long way or drinking from a polluted or contaminated water source. So we praise God for that and the, the, the folks that got to go. And so you may be interested in taking a mission trip sometime or learning more about what it might mean to cross an ocean or cross, uh, get, out, get outside of your community and go with the love and the message of Jesus and, and, and experience some of the things like that. So rb, rockbridge.cc forward slash go is where you can get more information. In the fall, like September, October, we will finalize our dates and our locations for 2019 and you can get started uh, in learning about what's coming up and what's going on by checking that spot out on the website. So we're in part two of a series we began last week called Spirit Blockers. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'll give you some theology by way of U2. If you know U2 or Bono, right? He says this, okay, that religion is what happens when the Holy Spirit leaves the building. So little words there from a famous musician. So that's why it's important for us to understand the doctrine or the teaching or who and what the Holy Spirit does and how we might block his work or his influences. And we sort of, we said this last week, and it's important for everybody to hear, hear this, that you cannot become a Christian apart from an encounter and the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot live the Christian life without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, period, end of discussion. So it is important that we understand who it is, what the Holy Spirit does. So here we go. Let me put uh, some things up on the screen. And when you read these things, it'd be kind of interesting to, to see this. These are some rules, right? And so let's look at this. Don't stay out so late. Go to bed early tonight and you have an 11 p.m. curfew. Now, on the surface, if I just sort of say those things or, or speak those things, these, are, these look like rules, and, and, and rules can be challenging, and, and rules can be like, well, who's going to tell me how late I can stay out? I, I want to be out as late as I want, or go to bed early tonight, like, hey, don't, you're not my mom, or you have an 11 p.m. PM curfew, you're like, why would you say that? But what if I attached some context to these, to these three statements? Like, the first context would be this, okay, you're a newlywed. Don't stay out so late because your spouse wants to spend time with you. That changes things, right? I mean, when you're single, you stay out as late as you want, right? When you're married and, and your spouse is like, hey, come home, I want to spend time with you. It changes things, right? Right? So we understand it a little bit differently uh, that when we see this relationship. All right, how about this one? Next image. So that one of, hey, you need to go to bed early tonight. What if you're an airline pilot and you've got a transatlantic flight in the morning? 
If you're, on the pl- if you're a passenger, you're hoping they're well-rested, right? And so you just have understanding of, okay, that's why I might go to bed early tonight. Now, what if we said, hey, you got an 11 p.m. curfew, but you're also the starting quarterback for a team, and y'all have got your big game tomorrow. So here's the whole point of this. Here's the whole point of what we're talking about. That rules without context create confusion. And rules without relationship invite rebellion. So if we just throw rules on each other or talk about rules, then there's, well, why do I have to follow that? Well, why is that important? Or, or I, I don't know why you would tell me what to do. So rules without context, I, I don't understand. Rules without relationship, if you don't care about me, why would you give me a rule? And, I, and that just invites me to rebel against your rule. And, and yet, when it comes to Christianity or church or religion, most of us think of this word in some form or fashion. It's a, it's, or we have thought about this word, and we don't understand the context of things. So I'm going to sort of, abbrevi- in an abbreviated fashion, go to Ephesians chapter 4 and, and a little bit into chapter 5. And, and there's a, a list of rules there that if we're not careful, this is what we'll see when we look at these rules. Paul's going to say, don't lie, don't stay angry, don't use foul language, don't be bitter, don't slander people. Hey, sexual immorality, that's a no-no. No crude jokes or coarse joking. And, and don't be greedy. Now, if that's all you see when you encounter religion or you encounter, rather, Christianity, if that's all you see and you don't ha- have the context of it or understand the heartbeat behind it, then you can find an excuse for all of these things. Or you can find a situation where, hey, I might need to lie. Or I have a right to be angry, and if you knew my story, you'd be as angry as I was, right? Or, <clears throat> hey, uh, every now, you know, no sexual immorality, but we're in love, and boys will be boys, and girls, God understands, right? So if all we do is talk about the do's and the don'ts, apart from the proper context, apart from a sense of relationship, we will find an excuse, a reason, uh, a way to negotiate out of these things, a way to misunderstand these things. And so you cannot understand the Bible, you cannot understand Christianity unless you understand something beyond the rules. So let me give you the full context of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 4 as we move forward in this series called Spirit Blockers. He says this, but this is verse four, or chapter 4 verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ. And right there, there's a relationship that he's talking about. That's not how you came to know a living person. Capital P. That's not how you entered into a relationship, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus to take off your former way of life. There's an old you. And he says this, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. So there's an old you and a new you. So if you've ever fallen in love, if you've ever gotten married, if you've ever become a parent, Understand what Paul's saying. There's a you before you got married or before you fell in love. 
There's a you before you came up, became a parent. And then there's sort of a new you. And there's a new way of living because you're married. There's a new way of living because you're now a mom or because you're now a dad. And so Paul is saying, when you became a Christ follower or you begin to know Christ, not know about Christ, but know Christ relationally. Not know Christ as in knowing facts about him and giving mental assent to some historical beliefs, but knowing Christ as alive, as with you, as for you, as in you, as someone you can have a relationship with. So when you came to know Christ that way, there was an old you, B.C., before Jesus, and there's a new you. And that's what he wants us to understand. So he wants you to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and the purity of truth. Therefore, in light of this relationship, he says, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. We're part of the same family now, the family of God. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And then here's our word for the week. Last week, the word was resist. Here's our word. And don't grieve. Don't make sad. Don't burden God's Holy Spirit. It's phenomenal that the God of the universe would say or would allow himself to be affected to the point of sadness and grief by how we live. That's got to sit for a second on the soul. So he says, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit because you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. So here's kind of the critical question that we're going to wrestle with this weekend. It's this, do I see a list of rules to keep or a relationship to nurture? When you think of God, the church, Bible, Christianity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, do you think of a list of rules to keep or a relationship to nurture? This is an enormous, enormous, enormous question. Because, listen, if we see only rules, we'll eventually see reasons not to keep them. If all we see when we read that and we encounter that text is all I see are rules, we'll eventually find reasons not to keep them. And yet in this context of all these do nots and all these you shoulds and all these ought tos, there's this central verse in verse 30 that we just read. Don't make God sad. Don't grieve God. And that is a critical understanding for what happens and how we're supposed to live when we come to know Christ. When we come to know Christ. So there's three other questions in, in light of that big question that we want to ask because they're critical for our understanding. The first question is this, why does it not say anger God's spirit? Why does it not say, hey, don't anger God? Because isn't that what so many people are afraid of? That's why they won't come to church because it's all hellfire, brimstone, condemnation. You've made God mad. You better watch out. You better, you know, stop. You better start. God's just up there and he's just fuming and he's just furious. So why doesn't it say, don't anger God's spirit? 
That's a very important question for us to understand because if we understand that we have rebelled against God, if we understand that we have sort of said no to God and no to a relationship with God, and all of us have on multiple fronts at multiple times in our existence, then, then we kind of, okay, maybe God should be angry with me. So why doesn't it say, don't anger God's spirit? Well, a couple of reasons. Well, one major reason, and it's important that we get this. First John 2.2. 2. And I'm going to read from the Amplified Translation because it defines some really tough words. And Jesus, or he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And this is what that means. The atoning sacrifice that holds back the wrath of God or the anger of God that would otherwise be directed at us because of our sinful nature, our worldliness, and our lifestyle. So here's what that means. The reason God doesn't get angry at sin is because that anger went on to Christ when he hung on the cross in my place and in your place. You got to feel that. God within himself, his family, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God got angry at his son, at himself, if you will, because Jesus substituted himself for us. And this satisfying of the wrath of God took place in actual factual history when Christ went to the cross for my sin and your sin as the atoning sacrifice, or our big word, as the propitiation for our sins. So why did Jesus do this? 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring you to God. So every barrier that would keep us away from a holy, pure, amazing, awesome God, God satisfied that, God removed that, and so we can enter into a relationship with God, and He's not angry at us. Now, here's what most of us think. Most of us somewhere along the lines think, well, I've got to make God less angry with me. I've got to clean my act up, get my act together. I've got to earn brownie points with God, and I'm a pretty good person, so at least I'm ahead of those other people. Or I'm a bad person, so I'm working from a deficit, so I've got to overcome that. Or, or we just say, I, I give up trying, and I'm out of here. So hear, hear what we just need to say. Life change does not come before the relationship, but because of it. When you were single, let's say you're married... When you were single, you didn't start acting like a married person really until you got married. When you were a parent, you didn't start acting like a parent until what? You had a child. Because So the change does not come necessarily before, but because of this is who I am now. So the, 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 operational, the, the operation of Christianity looks a little bit like this. So look at this image here. So... We're born with this, ten, we put ourselves in the center. And everything that we do tends to be f- to flow from this sense of self or what we think satisfies our ego or what we think brings us pleasure or what we think gives us an identity. And, and so we do certain things because we have self at the center. We pick up certain practices, pick up certain rituals because of who we are. In the act of salvation, in the act of us going from old us to new us, self gets replaced. And the Spirit comes to reside inside of all of us. 
And, and the Spirit illuminates and shines Christ in our hearts. And so would it not make sense, since we've exchanged what defines us in our deepest level, wouldn't it make sense that now certain things flow from that? So all of those quote-unquote rules that Paul lists in Ephesians 4 and 5 where we're tempted to say, really God? Are you sure God? Uh, I can find a couple of reasons where this one seems okay to me, God. All of those things go away when we understand they flow from a relationship with a holy God. And this is what happens when you and I enter into a, a walking, dynamic, eternal, saving, lifelong relationship with God. And, and if we don't understand this, then we'll get tripped up and we'll get messed up and, and we won't understand the, the weight or the power or the emphasis of what we just read in Ephesians 4.30, that you and I can make God sad because God puts himself in the center. And when we do things that damage him or that grieve him, then he can be saddened by it. So second question, what does it mean that we can grieve God? I mean, that's a little bit crazy when you think of how big God is. He creates the cosmos. He creates everything. He sustains creation. He, rose, he causes his son to be resurrected from the dead. And that you and I can make God or affect God's emotions. So what does that mean? Well, it means this about God. God is personal and present. God is not the guy upstairs or some distant God. God is real and he's alive and he's dynamic. He is personal and he is present. See, a lot of us, you know what we think? Okay, we believe in God. We just don't believe God is with us. Let me put it even further. If you're a Christ follower, we don't believe God is in us. So, we may, so here's what that means. You think when you're in church, you act a certain way because that's when you're in God's presence. But when you're out of church, quote unquote, meaning the building and the time slot, it doesn't matter how you act because you're outside of God's presence. There's a, there's a Monday you and a Sunday you, figuratively. There's a, I'm in God's presence you and I'm with my buddies at the bar you. And you cannot say that when you understand the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So imagine this, okay? Imagine you and your wife or you and your, you and your husband. Imagine you'll have a child. And let's just pick this. Your, chi your, your child, you find out, has a peanut allergy, okay? So because your new self is now a mom or a dad and part of your charge is to steward the upbringing of your child and protect them and nurture them, you immediately get rid of all peanut products in your house. You know when you go to school, you got to you know, make the teachers and the school system aware of those dangers and, and all of those kind of things. Why? Because you have a relationship with someone who has a peanut allergy, someone that you love. All right? God is allergic to sin. Rebellion. All those things we just saw, God is allergic to it. Now, here's what a lot of us have tried to do with God. And this is how we grieve the Holy Spirit and wonder why God's not, you know, active in our lives. When, you're, when you have someone in your life who has a peanut allergy, as long as you're not around them... Or won't be around them for a while. What can you do? You can eat peanuts. So here's what we think. As long as I'm not around God. I can live however I want to live. And when I come to church. Or I need something from God. 
then I'll clean myself up a little bit and get rid of the peanuts. If you understand and believe that the Holy Spirit comes to live and mingle with your soul, which he does if you are a Christ follower, then God is personal and present with you just as much as he is right now on this day and this time in this building as he will be tomorrow at your job, tonight or this afternoon with your family. There is never a time you are not in the presence of holiness. So, so now do you understand why sexual immorality is wrong? Now, now do you understand why coarse joking is wrong or sinful? Because it hurts the one who loves you most. It hurts the one who took God's anger in your place. And if you don't see that, then we have to go back to ground zero and talk about Christ died in your place to come and bring you to himself. So the second point we can make about what it means to grieve God is this. Sin is more about who it is against than what we did. See, here's what you and I want to focus on. Well, what we did. Well, what we did wasn't that bad. Well, what we did, no one else, nobody really knows about it. Well, what we did, nobody really got hurt. Well, there's a, there's a, there's, and we want to graduate and make sin uh, like degrees. You know, like some sins are really, really bad. And some things, they're not even sins, they're just mistakes and oopses, right? And, and that tends to be how we think because we're focused on what we did. And we're thinking, hey, I'm not as bad as those people or I'm not as bad as, as those people over there. And, and so it's just crazy how we'll do that. But when you understand that you can grieve God, that sin is more about who it, against, who it is against than what we did, it's a game changer, now, let me, let me make this even more personal and, and more applicable. There are certain things that I, I've come to believe that for everybody in here, there's certain things you would never, ever consider doing. Because you would say, that's just wrong. And then there's some of you who would, who would say, well, even though my neighbor, the person sitting next to me, would never do this, I might do it. Right time, right place. I knew I wouldn't get caught. You know, and then for some people, you're like, there's nothing. Some of you are like, there is nothing wrong with this. Uh, you can't convince me that and I have no problem with this. And, and other people are like, eh, I'm not so sure. So we kind of just sort of think about sin in categories. But when you understand that all of your sins, all of my sins grieve God. He's allergic to them. He hates them. And you can never get out of his presence. David said, where can I go to get away from you, God? Nowhere. Okay, King David said that. When you understand that, it begins to change you because of the context and the understanding of relationship. All right, so let's take a couple of examples to, to, so you can understand how we need to unlearn some thinking, okay? So let's talk about getting hit in the head. All right, this right here we would call spearing or targeting in football language. It's now like a penalty in, in, all, in all football where we have deliberate helmet-to-helmet or head-to-head -head contact. 15-yard penalty, they'll review it and all that kind of stuff and see if we should kick, kick this person out of the game. Now, for, for most of us, most of us red-blooded American guys, we're like, ah, it's just football. And then some of us are like, well, they need to be, you know, concussions, you got to be a little more careful. So we, we kind of like, okay, this is 
okay, it's against the rules. I'm not even sure I agree with the penalty or I agree with the call. It's kind of gray. It's kind of subjective. I'm okay with this sometimes. Then we've got like down here, and I don't know if you can see this well, but this is like a bar fight. All right? And, you know, they're throwing chairs, and this guy's got a wine bottle here. And, and you're like, well, that's pretty bad. I mean, we need to call the police. And whoever started it probably needs to get, you know, thrown in jail overnight and to cool off. And, God, the person using this chair or using this stick, yeah, we need to get them too. But I can understand people just defending themselves. So this is worse than this. And, and we'll have some debate, right? And then we've got a lady and a, and a man with his fist, and he's hit her. And if I'm a betting person, I bet you all of us in this room say, that is always wrong. That is somewhat most of the time wrong. Uh, depends how you look at it. They're all hits to the head, right? That's how you're tempted and I'm tempted to look at sin. Okay? But what makes it worse is don't hit a woman. Sin is against God. A holy God who self-substituted himself, put himself in our place and died to bring us into relationship, not into religion, into relationship with him. And when you get that the newest, best part of you is Christ in you, the Spirit of God in you, you're in relationship with God 24-7. Suddenly you're like, I can't do that anymore. Or I've got to do this because I'm in relationship with God. This is why when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. She got pregnant. He wanted to cover it up, hide it. So he has all these schemes and plots and he ends up having her her husband murdered, killed. And when he's under conviction and he realizes what he did, listen to what he says, Psalm 51. He says this, against you, God, and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge, because I have sinned against you. Now, we can say, well, he sinned against Bathsheba. She was innocent. He was the king. She became like a victim of his power play. You could say he sinned against, uh, you know, her husband, Uriah. You could say all those kind of things. But the, the crux of his brokenness and what opened him up and opened his soul up is that he realized he had sinned against God. So, so here's what this means. There is no such thing as a little sin, because there is no such thing as a little God. There's no such thing as a little sin, because there's no such thing as a little God. Now, I, I don't say that just to make us all like, oh, oh. I say that. Because the God of the cosmos, the God of the cross, the God of the Bible, the God of creation wants to have a relationship with you. 
If you're a parent and your child has a peanut allergy, there's no such thing in your child's presence as a good peanut, as an okay peanut. It's all got to go. And when the defining part of you is the Spirit of God in you, there is no such thing as a little sin, as a, that's okay sin. That's just an oopsie. Because God is a big God. What else does it mean when it says we can grieve the Holy Spirit? means this, sin is more a failure of intimacy than a failure of performance. That's, I want us to unpack this a little bit. Sin is more of a failure of intimacy or relationship than a failure of performance. Most of us, because we're trained to monitor our behavior and we're trained to monitor our performance, we tend to gravitate and see sin as a failure of performance. And now here's what happens when you see sin as a failure of a performance. You can say things like, well, I'm going to do better next time. Well, my performance is not as bad as, as theirs. At least I'm not like that. Because you, you start using that kind of language. And then you start using like a law of averages. Like a good hitter in baseball, it has about a three batting average. That means they get a hit three out of ten times. But as soon as you see sin as a failure of intimacy, would you go up to your wife or your husband and say, hey, I've said seven nasty things to you, but I've said three good things. I got a 300 batting average, baby. No. You would never do that. Because one hurtful comment to your kid or your spouse can damage them for a lifetime. You don't play the law of averages with relationships. You play, if this grieves you and this hurts you, then I got to stop. Or I got to start. Because the most important thing about me is this relationship. So let's go back to what we, the, the hub diagram that we looked at earlier. So here's self. And whatever fuels this self, right? And Paul called it the old self, the self apart from the Holy Spirit, the self apart from Christ. All right, as soon as self and spirit, this, the switch happens, the life change happens, this becomes the defining part of us. And, and, and so this is how we think of ourselves. I go to work, I'm in Christ, Christ is in me. I go home, I'm in Christ, Christ is in me. It doesn't matter if I'm a businessman, a dad, and, and I play softball on the side. I can never stop, I can never shut this off, I can never escape this, and, and I don't want to because this is who I am. See, there's a strong correlation between who you think you are and who you perceive yourself to be in your core and what you do and what you don't do. Okay, I, I'll give you an example. So my boys, you know, we're getting ramped up for back to school, which means sports, okay? So I've got one of my sons who's thinking and working to try out like for cross country. So, he, so he's like starting to embrace this. Okay, maybe I can run. Maybe I can run long distances. So he like wants to put something on. What does he want? He wants new running shoes. 
Okay, and, and Paul used that language, put on Christ, take off your old self. So Yasu, take off the old shoes, they don't work, let's put on some new, okay? Let's get some new, you know, some speedy things maybe, right? There's just something about us that when we start to see ourselves in a certain relationship, in a certain context, certain things we want to do and certain things we don't want to do. Abraham, you know, he's getting ready, he's getting ready for football. And so the other day he went to a little walk through practice and he's like, hey, dad, 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 dad. Can I get a helmet like that? Or can I get a new pair of cleats? Mine are too small. He's thinking about putting some things on and putting some things off. When you have this encounter where the Holy Spirit, God, comes to live in you, it does not make any sense to say, I'm going to keep grieving the God who lives inside of me. It does make sense to start thinking what Paul just said. Put some things off, put some things on. Stop doing some things, start doing some things. Not because there's a list of rules and God's playing gotcha, because there's a God who's in you and he loves you. And the most important thing about us becomes Christ in me and I'm in Christ. Finally, sin is ultimately defeated through a change of desires. And that's, that's where we got to sit because a lot of us think, well, I'm changed through, through willpower. Your will is involved, but it's motivated by a desire. Or I'm changed by trying harder and doing better. I would say you're changed by loving more correctly. Loving more correctly. What changes the single person who suddenly gets married to doing what married people do? The relationship. The desire to please, to honor, to serve the spouse. They're changed through the relationship, through a change of desires. And here's what you need to know about you. Every single one of us... Everything we do is in some part motivated by a desire. And until spirit displaces self, we, have, we will struggle in our walk with God. So I want to read you a quote by an old school Puritan guy named Thomas Calmers, all right? The heart's desire to have some object is unconquerable. Now, now that's kind of old school language, so let me unpack it. Your heart is going to desire something. Your heart is going to have affection for something. Your heart is going to pursue something. Girl, guy, money, job, social media. Your heart is going to pursue something. Period. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. So your heart used to like doing this sort of stuff, bad stuff, whatever. The only way that's really going to go down in your life is there, if there is an explosion of a new affection, a new desire that trumps the old one. Where you say, hey, rather than pursuing sexual immorality, rather than using coarse joking, rather than lying, whatever you want to take, I'm going to pursue Christ. Through the expulsive power of a new one. Through the spirit, the heart brought under the mastery, the dominion, the authority, the control of one great predominant and supreme affection is delivered from the tyranny of all its former desires. And it is the only way that deliverance is possible. Self and all the old self and all of those desires Get moved away. So, so we'll go back to what we've been talking about. Here's our image. 
There is a new desire placed in the center of who you are at your core. And the Spirit illuminates and it creates and moves desires for Jesus Christ. And so everything we do and everything flows from here. That's life change. That's old self, new self. That's what Paul's talking about. And if we don't get that, then we walk out of here unaffected. We walk out of here no different than we walked in. And we walk out of here with this amazing thing that's now possible that I can make God grieve. And that's got to hit us. And, and listen, listen, listen. If you're unaffected by that, what kind of dad would I be if, my, if I hurt my sons, which I have, and I didn't feel some remorse and repentance? You would have, if you saw me do that time and time and time and time again, you'd say, biologically, he may be a dad, or through a legal decree, in my case, through adoption, he may be their, their dad, but he's not acting like it. Right? So, so the, the, the big question that we will leave with today is this. Well, how do we grow desires? How do we grow our affections? I mean, if your mom's like, hey, you should eat Brussels sprouts. You're like, well, I hate them. You're going to have a hard time eating Brussels sprouts. How do you grow your desires? You ever thought about that? Because we, li listen, listen, this is a big deal for postmoderns and a big deal for, for this gen generation's coming up because we're like, I don't have any control about my desires. I, it's in my biology. I don't have any control of it. If you feel it, you, you do it. If it pleases you, you do it. That's just the way it works. And hey, so I just didn't get the I desire Jesus gene. Church is for church people. God is for religious people. I'll see you. To each his own, baby. Wrong. How do we grow our desires? How do we grow our desires? Let me just, I'm going to give you the bottom line in just a second. But here's how you grow your desires. All right. You have to look at something. Long enough to start to admire it and appreciate it. All right? So I married a woman who loves music and art and drama. Okay? She married a guy who played football, who was a nerd, and who was in the Navy. But out of love for my wife, I'm like, okay, I'll, 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 we'll start going to some Broadway stuff whenever we're in New York City or whatever. And so I, you sit there for two, three hours and I'm like, this is amazing. Because I looked and looked and looked till I could see the beauty and stand in awe of the talent and the work and the effort. So the bottom line, if we're going to grow desires for God, we have to keep looking at Christ and his gospel. I don't care if you've been in church 80 years. There is nothing greater I can say to you than Christ crucified, buried, and raised. Christ in your place. Christ for your sins. Christ in your soul. I, can't, I can never give you a better sermon than that. Now, this is what Paul does in Ephesians 4. We've got rules we, in the context of relationship, but look what Paul does. Is that not how you came to know Christ? Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, you kept looking and learning Christ as the truth is in Jesus. 
to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. We're going to change those because we're going to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and the purity of the truth. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit, what we've been talking about, because you're sealed by him for the day of redemption. And then notice what he says. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. And everybody's like, I can't forgive what they did to me, because every one of us has a reason not to forgive somebody. And look what he says. But don't look at them. Just forgive, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So look to Christ, look to Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God look to Christ as dearly loved children. Look how much he loved you to bring you to God. He died to take care of that propitiation, that satisfaction of wrath and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. So the first thing Paul would say is you look to Christ, you keep looking to Christ and then all those other desires when you want to tell the lie or you want to slander or you want to gossip or you want to sleep with your girlfriend, they'll go away because you will be such in awe of Christ. And the affections for Jesus are expulsive and they get rid of all those lesser affections. Because every action you take and every ambition you have has a corresponding desire. Here's my question. What is it? To love Christ or grieve Christ? And so we have to continually in our day-to-day raise awareness in our souls to gain alignment. Now, what do I mean by that? is you have to live in awareness of God's presence. You have to live in faith that Christ is in you, the Spirit of God is in you, and as you're aware, it creates alignment. Now, right? Because you know you behave differently based on who you're with, right? You know that, right? That's what parents, some of you have teenagers, that's what you're praying hard about, right? You behave differently because who you're with. Well, here's, here's, the, here's the news of the gospel. Christ died to bring you to God. God is omnipresent, so he's always in you, and he's always with you. You take him to work, you take him home. So the more aware you are of his presence, the more you will align with a life that is of love with him and does not grieve him. Now, last thing, growth often requires unlearning. You have to be willing to unlearn Some of you, you know what you need to unlearn? Religion. What did Bono say? Religion is what happens when the Holy Spirit leaves the building. Some of us, you got to unlearn religion. Some of us, you know, you got to unlearn some things you heard. Unlearn. Let go. It is a relationship with God. And then understand this. Final thought. Growth in your relationship will often look increasing like abandonment of self. What I mean? The old self. What I mean? I'm no longer who I used to be because I'm in Christ. So here's the question. Here's the question. Two questions. First question is this. To Christians, are you grieving God? And let's just call it grieving God. And perhaps that would open your heart to repentance today. To not yet Christians. Do you know God wants to be in you and with you? And he died for you. 
If he's knocking, if he's calling, would you say yes? Glory be to God. Let's pray together. So, uh, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, we just want to give you space. Realizing in the hustle and bustle, we lose awareness of the great truth of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Realizing that we gravitate toward rules, rituals, and religion in our marriages, in our families, and certainly with you, God, where we just, you become a checklist, you become a box to check as opposed to a person to be with. God, forgive us from that. God, show us where we have minimized our causing of grief to you or developed a rationale or an excuse for it. But God, just also awaken us to what you want more than anything is to see us defined and driven by your presence in us, your presence with us. God, I just pray, wherever you take this Holy Spirit, you take it. You're God, not Matt Evans. I just pray no one, no one leaves here the same way they came in. In your name we pray.